Acts chapter 1. This is uh, Themes from Acts part 7. I hope you've read through the book of Acts uh, several times in your life, particularly of late as we're engaged in this study. In any case, I have a quiz for you. The complete title of the book of Acts would be what? Complete title. Acts of? The Acts of? The Apostles, okay, that's probably the most common name uh, used for this book, and indeed it does feature what the apostles do in spreading the gospel and establishing the church. Peter and Paul are featured, but what about a different answer for that question? Acts of blank, what else could you put in there? Well, as we noted from our first message from Acts, it could be called the Acts of Jesus, part two. Uh, Acts chapter 1 and verse 1 said, the first account, this is Luke writing, I composed Theophilus about all that Jesus began to do and teach. So here Luke, our author, refers to the gospel which bears his name. He says it was about what Jesus began to do, so it is fair to say that Acts is viewed by Luke as a continuation of what Jesus Christ is doing. It is the Acts of Jesus. But Jesus goes to heaven in the first chapter, so that opens up the possibility of a third title, which rather refers to someone just as important as Jesus in the history of the church, and that would be, and could only be, the Holy Spirit of God. So one could call this the Acts of the Holy Spirit. So today, let's make the Spirit of God our focus as we seek to understand His role in the growth of the church and the redemption of the world. Chapter 1, verse 4, gathering them together, Jesus commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which He said, you heard of from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So Jesus had said to go to the ends of the earth with the gospel. That is the long-range goal and mission of the church. But step one, says the Lord, is waiting. It's waiting. And some of us are not very good at that. But the disciples actually did pretty well. They waited and they prayed. And it was just a few days later when the big bang of church missions occurred on the day of Pentecost. And we will look at the account of Pentecost in just a few minutes, but first consider the promise of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, in the passage we just read, called the gift of the Spirit what the Father had promised. Well, where did the Father promise this? I'll, uh, I'll give you three answers to that question. First, he promised this in the writings of the prophets. If you're in Jim Yoder's Sunday school class on Ezekiel, you may have or may will uh, read this passage from Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 25. Can we get that on the screen? Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness, from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. This is a prophecy about future mercies on the unfaithful people of Israel. And the focus here is on the spirit's empowerment for godly living. Similarly, Isaiah doesn't say much about the spirit in his great book, but he does say this in chapter 44 in verse 3, I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And then in the first Christian sermon, 
Peter makes reference to the Old Testament prophecy from Joel chapter 2, and there he says, this is what has been spoken through my prophet Joel, and it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour out my Spirit on all mankind. So Peter right away connects the phenomena of Pentecost to the Word of God in the prophetic literature. When Jesus refers to what the Father had promised, He is talking about a promise that began many hundreds of years before the Pentecost event. But then secondly, this promise was made through John the Baptist. John was the figure who sort of bridged the Old Covenant into the New Covenant, so it is super appropriate that he should restate the promise of the special New Testament work of the Spirit, and he does. Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And then Jesus. His most explicit teaching about the Spirit is found in John's Gospel, chapter 14, verse 16. I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper, that He may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see Him or know Him, but you know Him, because He abides in you, or abides with you, and will be in you. And then same chapter, verse 26, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So here the Spirit is promised primarily as one who brings light and truth, who is an internal, personal teacher of the Jesus follower, and who is given to be our sufficiency in that period after Jesus goes to heaven and before His return. Not a visible presence, but a spiritual helper. And so the disciples already had all of this as context when Jesus told them to wait for the Spirit to be poured out upon them. Their anticipation of this long-awaited endowment must have been extraordinary. And then the big day arrives. Acts chapter 2, verse 1, the day of Pentecost. We're going to read all 16 verses. Follow along. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting, and there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arab, we hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, they are full of sweet wine. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, 
Men of Judah and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words, for these men are not drunk as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. We've already noted that prophecy from Joel, which Peter comments on, and then he proceeds to proclaim to them Jesus, crucified, risen, and exalted. So this is the long-awaited day, prophesied of old, foretold by John, assured by Jesus. The sensible elements include the outpouring, uh, the, the sensible elements of the outpouring include several elements, I should say. While the disciples were inside, they heard a noise like wind. Then they saw tongue-shaped fire falling on each person. They then spoke with other tongues. The word there simply means languages. Were these ordinary human languages or something angelic? We are not told. We just know the speech was transrational. It was in languages the speakers did not know. Now, at some point, the group of believers must have moved outside because a large group assembled to hear and see what was going on. At the Pentecost festival in Jerusalem, there would have been many many visitors from the regions around Judea. Acts uh, speaks of this, and a variety of languages would have been represented by this group, but verse 8 says, they were all hearing in the language of their birth. This is the reversal of the Tower of Babel story. Was it a miracle of speaking, a miracle of hearing, or both? We cannot be sure, but the people were clearly astonished. Some foolish folk tried to explain it away, but the crowd mostly knew better. This they recognized as a visitation from God. So when Peter preached, they listened. They learned of the Messiah Jesus, His resurrection from the grave, His exaltation in heaven. And then Peter said in chapter 2, verse 38, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So Peter connects the gift of the Spirit to the inner grace of repentance, which is sealed in baptism. He believes that he can now promise the Spirit to all who receive the word of the gospel. How many responded to his message? 3,000, 3,000 respond. Curiously, Luke tells us they were all baptized with water, but there is no mention of them speaking in unknown tongues like the 120 did. We, we believe that all who truly repented received the promised Spirit. We believe that the ecstatic languages, the tongue speech, was a sign of the fulfillment of God's promise. But if 3,000 people had broken out in tongues simultaneously, surely that would have been worthy of a mention. But there is no mention. It seems the gift of the Spirit was truly given, but the special speech on this occasion was restricted to the smaller group. That is worth noting because as you proceed through the book of Acts, we see certain inconsistencies in how the bestowal of the Spirit is manifested. In Acts 10, when the Spirit fell upon a group of Gentiles in Caesarea, those new believers spoke in tongues. In Acts 19, when the Spirit fell on some who had been disciples of John, those people spoke 
in tongues. For obvious reasons, some then concluded that the Spirit's coming will always be manifested by speaking in tongues. But there are problems with that understanding. For one, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12.30 that speaking in tongues is a gift of the Spirit given to only some in the body of Christ. Verse 30 there says, all do not have gifts of healing, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? With the implied answer of being no, they don't. That verse follows in the same chapter as this very critical verse, 13. For by one spirit, well, why don't you all read this with me? For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Keep that up there, please. All members, all members of the body receive or baptized by the one spirit. Do you see that? Some of whom may speak in tongues. Some may not. But they all have equally been baptized in and by and with the Holy Spirit. The speaking in tongues of which we read in Acts 2 and Acts 10 and Acts 19 occurs for a particular reason, but even in Acts, it is not the uniform normal experience of all believers. Acts 2, the very day of Pentecost, we see it is not the experience of all or even most of the people who came to faith in that day and joined the church. In Acts chapter 4, we read that the Spirit fell, and the result of the Spirit's falling in Acts 4 is that God's people spoke with boldness the Word of God, but no mention of foreign languages or strange tongues. In Acts chapter 8, the Samaritans baptized by the Holy Spirit, but again, no mention of them speaking in tongues. In Acts chapter 9, the Apostle Paul himself, baptized by the Spirit, no mention of him speaking in tongues. If we are to believe that tongues is a universal accompaniment of the gift of the Spirit, it seems strange that Luke would omit that critical element in so many cases. To help us further, we can interpret this phenomenon in Acts by the light of the New Testament epistles. Paul, as we have seen, teaches that not all in the body receive tongue speech as a gift, but that all do receive the baptism of the Spirit. In Galatians, we read this, chapter 3 and verse 2. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now, what does that indicate is the condition for receiving the gift of the Spirit? Faith. Faith, which comes by hearing and rebirth, completely consistent with what Jesus had explained to his disciples back in John chapter 7, verse 37. On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Verse 39. We have one more verse there. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now you look at that and tell me, who is it that receives the Spirit of God in the New Testament age? 
Those who believe in Jesus. Very clear, very consistent. Paul says all have been baptized into Christ. There's no great divide between the basic believing Christian and the you know, spirit-baptized deluxe version of a Christian. Our gifts may differ. Our advancements in grace may differ. But we are all one in Christ all drinking of the same blessed spirit without whom there is no repentance, without whom there is no faith, without whom there is no hungering and thirsting after righteousness, there is no love for Jesus, there is no prayerfulness. So we see all who believe receive this often awesome gift. All who believe receive this gift. Peter is preaching the gospel now in the home of Cornelius the Gentile, Acts chapter 10, verse 44, and he says, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who heard the word. Again, hearing with faith. When Peter tells the story of what happened in Acts 10, he tells it in chapter 11. Notice how he words it, Acts 11, verse 17. Since God gave these Gentiles the same gift he gave to us when we... You with me? When we what? Believed. In the Lord Jesus Christ, who is I to stand in God's way? When did the gift come? Again, brothers and sisters, when we believe. I hope that's helpful. There are two occasions, one or two in Acts, which we will look at later, when the outpouring of the Spirit is withheld until the apostles are there to witness the initial outpouring of the Spirit upon the Samaritans and then upon the Gentiles. This, I believe, was to authenticate and validate the genuine inclusion of the Gentiles into the New Covenant community. But these were unusual occurrences in a time of redemptive transitions. For us, it is clear that all who come to Christ by faith are given the Holy Spirit who baptizes us into the body of Christ so that when someone asks you, believer in Jesus, have you been baptized by the Holy Spirit? The answer is yes and hallelujah. In our final segment this morning, our last few minutes, let's see if we can appreciate more thoroughly what the ministry of the Spirit is to be in our lives. First, Jesus teaching his men in John chapter 15 and verse 26 says, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will, notice what it says, he will bear witness about me. <laughs> so the work of the Spirit is to bear witness of Jesus. Essentially, it is the Spirit who opens our heart, who, pours, uh, who speaks to your soul, and the message of the Spirit to your soul is this, hey, this Jesus is for real. He is the Son of the living God and the Savior of the world. The Spirit's work is to put point men and women to Jesus. Next, we see that the Spirit teaches us, and again, uh, about Jesus and about his words. John 14, 26, the Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, he'll teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So he'll bear witness of Christ. He'll remind us of his words. He comes to be our teacher. And I think this verse speaks to the inspiration of the apostles who were called of God to pen the Gospels of the New Testament, but also his ministry of teaching, of training disciples of Jesus in every age of the church. 
And then consider, too, how the Holy Spirit is given to equip believers for ministry. You remember Acts 1 and verse 8, where we're reminded you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the remotest parts of the earth. The Spirit of God is essential if we are to be witnesses for Jesus in a hostile world and in cross-cultural ministry. The fact that the church spread from a tiny group of disciples in Jerusalem to a worldwide phenomena is testimony to just how powerful this gift of the Spirit has proven to be. There is more we learn of the Spirit's work in the epistles, particularly those of Paul, where the apostle gets into the various gifts of the Spirit, the gifts for ministry that the Holy Spirit bestows according to His wisdom. But to keep it in Acts, I want to make one more point about the Spirit's work. He, and the Spirit is a He, not an It. Okay? Spirit of God is a He, not an It. A person, not a force. He is given to be the guide of believers. We see this all over the book of Acts. Philip, in Acts chapter 8, walking on a road, sees a chariot. Then in Acts chapter 8, in verse 29, the Spirit said to Philip, go up and join this chariot. Now, Acts speaks this way. It doesn't tell us exactly what this meant. Did he hear a voice? <laughs> Did he just get some kind of uh, inner sense of drawing? I don't know. But he meets a man, he obeys the Spirit, and he meets a man who was reading the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, and Philip leads him to Jesus. Awesome. Way to go, Philip! No, no. Way to go, Holy Spirit. Acts 10, the Spirit speaks to Peter, who's in Joppa, and he said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you, but get up, go downstairs, and accompany them without misgivings. For I have sent them myself. So these guys take Peter to the house of Cornelius in Caesarea, where the first group of total Gentiles are there to hear the gospel with faith and receive the Holy Spirit, who guided Peter there. Praise God! In Antioch, they were getting serious about the spread of the gospel into foreign places, and so they held a prayer gathering about it. Acts chapter 13 and verse 2, while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. From there they sailed to Cyprus. Fascinating. They looked to the Spirit to lead and the Spirit led. We don't know how exactly, but they clearly discern the Spirit telling them, Paul and Barnabas, they are my original missionary church planning team. And then it says the Holy Spirit sent Paul and Barnabas out. How awesome is that? We see from Acts that the Spirit leads people into ministry and then empowers them in that ministry. He guides as He equips with the goal of making Jesus famous of building His church and reconciling men, women, boys, and girls to their God. 
If you get into the missionary journeys in the book of Acts, you find reference there to the Lord leading His servants into one place and out of another. He directs them in His sovereign wisdom to fulfill His purposes. We're not always told how the Spirit speaks, perhaps through a dream, perhaps through an audible voice, perhaps through an inner impression or an intuition, perhaps through a word from a fellow believer. But this book of Acts includes a lot of names of human agents, Peter and Paul and Philip and Luke and more, but truly it is a record of the acts of the Holy Spirit that changed the world. Throughout my adult life, I have been a witness to so many of the Spirit's work, so much of the Spirit's work. In me and in others, I have been graciously guided by the Spirit in many ways myself. He speaks in Scripture. He speaks through godly friends. He speaks through dreams and circumstances and strangers and even sometimes through inanimate objects. What? Well, indulge me to uh, share some personal stuff, how this Florida boy landed in Pittsburgh 11 and a half years ago. Most of you have heard this story, but it truly is a story of how the Spirit moves to provide for His church. 2008, Beth and I were figuring out where God, trying to figure out where God would have us as our next season of ministry in our lives. And uh, we were looking at our options, and together we decided that we would not apply for any church positions north of Tennessee. Our mothers were still alive and in Florida. Most of our kids were still in Florida at the time. We didn't want to get quite too far away, so we drew a line at Tennessee. Nothing north of that. I saw the uh, opening here at North Park. I, I looked at it. I thought, that looks really good. That looks like it might be a fit, but as you might be aware, it is north <laughs> of Tennessee. So I did not send in an application. However, God moved through a man named Mike Glodo, whom I had never met. He was a seminary professor in Orlando, and after my resignation from Covenant Presbyterian Church of Palm Bay, Florida, they asked him to come fill the pulpit for a season in my absence. And so he would visit our church there. We weren't attending at the time. And he was a leader in the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. And Mike Glodo, without communicating with me, communicated with Wayne Castor and the search team at North Park Church and said, you should check out this Henley guy. And they did. And to my amazement, they pursued an interview with me. Beth and I talked about this. You know, this is north of Tennessee. But we figured, you know, we didn't apply for it. So we agreed we'll go ahead and look into the possibility. And so we did. In the course of that time, a uh, couple of stories flowing out of that. One is... Uh, during that season of pondering the opportunity here in the North Hills of Pittsburgh, 
We were praying a lot, and I was up in our daughter's bedroom praying with her one night, Sharon, and uh, we prayed about the opportunity here and whether we should pursue it or not. And after finishing the prayer, I, I turned, and something caught my eye. Um, <laughs> uh, it, it was an oscillating fan, you know, one of those little 12-inch fans? We'd had this fan for years. I'd, I'd never paid attention to the brand name, but there it was. <laughs> so when I reference inanimate objects, that's kind of what I'm talking about. Now, it gets a little better than this. Yeah, I, I know you'd hate to think he's here because of a fan. Are you kidding? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, eventually, after a lot of talk, the search team decided to invite me to come and meet with you and, uh, and get serious about possibly becoming the pastor here. And we were, we were torn north of Tennessee, quite, quite far north. There were some situations in the church that gave me pause at that time. I was very unsure. If you know me, I'm an analytical thinker. I like to have all the data, you know? And uh, I'm not too quick to pull the trigger on certain things. So we're, we're looking at it. We're struggling. We're sitting on the fence. And I told the search committee, I'll let you know in two weeks. Two weeks ended on January 25, 2009. And I woke up January 25, 2009, and I was still on the fence. Kind of like the United States was. For the, <laughs> yeah, I was still on the fence. And uh, we had a, a, an opportunity that morning to preach uh, at a tiny little church plant in South Orlando. And I mean tiny. Uh, I had preached there the Sunday before. They had hired me to preach two Sundays there. Their, their pastor had gone away. They needed some pulpit supplies. So, so I agreed to preach the last two Sundays in January. I go to this church the second time. They're meeting in an elementary school library. There's 20 to 25 people in this church. That's it. Second Sunday, we, we, we show up, we go in, and there's a couple there that wasn't there the previous week, and I approached them and said, hi, I'm Dan. I don't, didn't think I saw you here last week. Oh, no, we've never been here before. Okay. Uh, I'm Ron. I'm Gina. Gina looks at me and says, I know you. <laughs> you do? You went to Reformed Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi. I did. She said, I worked at the seminary when you were a student there. Okay, I remember you. Yeah. And I'm starting to think, you know, I think I remember her. I actually knew her when she was a student at Bellhaven College, in fact. And uh, it's my husband, Ron. Good to meet you guys. Okay. That's Ron. I uh, asked Ron, uh, you, you went to seminary? Yeah, yeah. What you been doing in ministry, Ron? Well, he said, I just finished pastoring a church in Brooksville, Florida, an evangelical Presbyterian church there for 16 years. And I said, oh, I've applied for your old job. Uh, and I said, what were you doing before you were in Brooksville? And he said, well, I pastored a church in Butler, Pennsylvania. And I'd learned enough Western Pennsylvania geography by this time to know that that wasn't too far from Pittsburgh. And I said, are you familiar with the EPC church in Wexford? And he said, North Park? And I said, yeah, North Park. And he said, North Park's a great church. And I said, really? 
well, they've kind of offered me the position as lead pastor there. And Ron looked at me, and he pointed at me, and he said, take it. There were 20 people in this little church in South Orlando, Florida. And in walks a couple that had never been there before. He knows North Park Church well enough to tell me it was a great church and I should leap at the opportunity to be the pastor here? Are you kidding me? Well, I preached my sermon. We did the service. As we finished up, Ron and Gina walked up to me and Beth, and they said, you know, God sent us here today for you. And I said, I think I get that. (laughs) And we believe the Holy Spirit sent them there and gave them the words that we needed to hear. Gina grew up in Tampa. She explained that Florida people could survive up here. (laughs) The Spirit gave them the words we needed to hear to walk through the door that the Holy Spirit had opened through some extraordinary providences. So this is the power that is at work in the church. (laughs) Okay, there you go. That was April 2009. This is the power that is at work in the church to bear witness of Jesus, to teach, to train up God's people, to equip, and to guide. Let's embrace that power prayerfully, courageously. Follow His lead and continue the work which God so mightily begun at Pentecost in Jerusalem nearly 2,000 years ago. Kevin, come on up. I look around and I, uh, there's Laura Daly was part of that search team that called me in 2009. Kevin was a part of that as well. Deb Holt, Nancy Van Sickle, Wayne Caster's off in Nashville somewhere, but uh, in any way. We thank God for him working in these folks, but we believe that it was the Spirit of God who moved and led through various instruments. Kevin's going to lead us in prayer, and then we're going to seek the Spirit of God in his fullness for us together in prayer and in song.